Hey everyone, it's Blake. Before the start of the show, just wanted to let you all know that I just got some really awesome t-shirts made. They are probably the softest, most comfortable thing you could ever wear, and they have the awesome half-hour intern logo on it. So if you're sitting there and you've been thinking to yourself, man, how could I help Blake out? How could I support this podcast? It would be a huge help and a huge support if you would buy one of these t-shirts. They are available on halfhourintern.com. Thanks so much for your support. On to the show. You know, maybe we were feeling like we were ahead of the trend in 2010. By 2013, those things are long gone. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Josh Harris, who is co-owner of the bar Trick Dog here in San Francisco. So Trick Dog is, if you were to Google it right now, it would literally be on tons of lists for being one of the best bars in the entire world. And on pretty much any list, you will find it as being one of the top five bars in the city of San Francisco, which is really saying something considering it's only been open for about two and a half years now. So Josh and his partner, Scott, both own Trick Dog, and then they also own a alcohol brand consulting and marketing company um, called the Bon Vivants. So we'll go over both of those jobs that Josh does and what it is that makes Trick Dog such a special and unique, awesome bar for people to go to. Without further ado, here is Bar Owner. Josh, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I am incredibly fascinated by you. I I think you might be like the most interesting man in the world. So (laughs) I, I had already thought that when I knew about... It, when my, my fiance had told me about you and what you do and who you are, I then went on your website and prepped for this interview to get a little bit more background on your company, The Bon Vivants, and then what ended up happening with Trick Dog and stuff like that. And so on your own definition of The Bon Vivants, it says you guys do cocktail slash hospitality slash marketing slash design, which is a really interesting group of things. So basically, you just said here's all this stuff that I'm really interested in and I'm just going to freaking do all of it is what it sounds like. And then when I showed up here, I was like, Josh, how old are you? And you're like, I'm 33 years old. And that basically blew my mind because I feel like in order to have had the level of success that you've had in your life, you would have to be at least 85 years old or something. <laughs> so <laughs> I always to like us. to say we've become rich in reputation. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what the Bon Vivants is with, with all those different definitions and because that was your first, the first thing that you started, right? It is. So Scott Baird, my partner, uh, and I started the Bon Vivants in 2009. We officially became a, a company in 2010 and we started the company based on an opportunity that we had to do a consulting for a bar that was going to open. And the story goes like, I picked up Scott from the airport. I said, there's an opportunity to do a consulting for a bar. I could do it alone or we could do it together. If we do it together, we could say that we're a company. Then we would just be a company because we said we are one. And then (laughs) we'd do that job. And then maybe we would do other jobs in the future. And it was literally as simple as that. And then we got, you know, a name and business cards and that was an extremely legitimizing thing. And what year did you say this was? This was 2009. Okay. 
And, uh, and so we did that consulting job and explain to me really quickly how you get a consulting job. Cause well, like no one's come up to me and asked me to, <laughs> totally. them what they're so, it, you know, and we've constantly asked ourselves that question multiple times throughout the course of our, of our, the life of our business. And it, it really segues back into how the rest of the company evolved, which we can get into in a little bit, but we knew somebody who knew somebody and they were opening a bar and there are obviously many people that are capable of doing that type of work, but we just happened to know a guy who knew a guy who needed a thing. And and so we got the call and we told them that we could do that. And, and so we did that. It was literally as simple as that. So did you and your partner, Scott, have the same background or what were each of you bringing to the table that these people wanted your help? So Scott at the time was co-owner of a bar called 15 Romolo in North Beach, which he is not. And I was working uh, as a bartender uh, at one day a week at, at that bar and a few days a week at another bar and doing some work with a liquor brand, which also ties back into the story. And you know, in many ways at that time, our skill sets were very complementary to each other. Mm-hmm. We were making creative cocktails and the people that were opening this bar wanted a list of creative cocktails and their staff to be trained on how to make those cocktails the right way. Mm-hmm. Man, that, uh, that is such an interesting, awesome way to get started. So you get thrust into this uh, company, basically what happens from there from the first job that you end up getting? So after we got that first job, we did that. And within three months, we got hired to do two more jobs, one of which was Quince, a a now, you know, uh, it was the transition between their old, very small location in Pacific Heights to their larger location where they are at now, where they have a full bar. And, uh, you know, Quince obviously is an amazing restaurant with amazing accolades. And so that was a huge honor for us to, yeah, to yeah. do that project. And, for sure. Uh, and then the other job was in Washington, D.C. And so literally within three months of starting this quote unquote company, which wasn't even a company at the time that <laughs> legally we did three consulting jobs, one of which was Quince and one of which was on the other side of the country. Yeah. And, uh, and, and sort of that takes us to the beginning of that next year in 2010, when we actually made the company an LLC and, you know, thought, okay, let's, you know, let's see where this can go. Now, does that have to do with Scott leaving the bar that he owned in North beach? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't speak on behalf of him in regards to that, but I will say that we had a synergy with each other uh, that we were both very attracted to. And at a certain point, Trick Dog and the opportunity for Trick Dog enters into this equation. Yeah. And I'm sure that there were multiple factors that, that factored into you know what his decisions were in that process. Yeah. Um, but I know that his previous partners over there are great acquaintances of ours and, and mine as well. So awesome. you know, it's all good there. So what happens after that? So you get those first three consulting gigs. You decide to make your own complete LLC. Um, where are you guys at at that point in time in terms of size and scope? I mean, right now, I came over to your office, which is this huge, awesome place in the mission. I imagine you did not have this space back in 2011. <laughs> we did, so we definitely what was didn't. the setup so, like? Uh, the main, the really critical point that came in thought after those three consulting jobs were to your point earlier, consulting jobs of that nature are it's, it's difficult to be proactive about getting that type of work. 
you can do so much with your reputation. You can get press about different things and sort of like try and increase uh, the, the the brand awareness of your name, et cetera. But ultimately, someone has to call. Yep. And so we're sort of looking at the types of work that were out there in this sort of general beverage space uh, for, you know, quote unquote, cocktail guys. And we looked at sort of different ways where we could be more proactive about the type of work that we were doing. As I mentioned earlier, I was also working with a brand uh, at that time called Tequila Ocho. Uh, and ultimately what happened was Tequila Ocho went through some growing pains and I had a conversation with their CEO who is now like a, you know, a great partner and, and mentor of mine. And we discussed his needs for that brand as it related to, you know, the point at which his company was. And I explained to him that, you know, I had sort of uh, started this company and it wasn't just me as an individual anymore. And, and I had this partner named Scott, who is also very talented and the type of work that we wanted to do with each other. We wanted it to be done as our company and rather than me as an individual. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, you know, ultimately now, uh, Altamar Brands and Tequila Ocho has been, you know, our longest client. And in many ways, uh, that relationship was an opportunity for us to really develop and hone the types of skills that we can offer in that space mm -hmm. um, and create a lot of awareness for other brands to, to look at what we were doing and potentially be attracted to those types of services. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really good advice for anybody I mean, anybody in, in any type of entrepreneurial business or starting something for themselves is you obviously have to have just a really freaking good product, right? Yeah. That people want to talk about. There's only so much self-promotion that you can do. Like everything kind of needs to come down to referrals at a certain point. Exactly. And just buzz. So let's talk a little bit about what what the heck you guys actually do. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like the I, you know, because I have the fortune of having gone to your bar Trick Dog, which we'll get to in a little bit. I can kind of imagine the things that you guys do for people because your style there is like so on point and the drinks are unbelievable. Um, is that the types of things that you're doing for these other bars is helping them with drinks, helping them with menus, styling. So ultimately what's happened is over the course of time since 2009 to now, we've had a really difficult time articulating what it is that we do in sort of like an elevator pitch sort of way. Yeah. Um, we've, been able to get a lot more clarity on that recently as we've continued to grow. But part of it comes from the fact that when you're young and you're hustling and you're trying to start a company and like, you're still bartending five days a week and you're coming into, you know, a place to sit at a computer and you're tired all the time. And, you know, you, 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 you take opportunities because they're opportunities. Totally. And so the initial thought was, well, if it has anything to do with you know, beverage <laughs> with or someone cocktails. handing me a paycheck yeah. i will and, do it and, and if you're calling yeah. then we're gonna figure out a way to do it right? definitely and so we always had this joke at the beginning we used to have a whiteboard on the wall and the whiteboard said we are a multifaceted cocktail adventure company and that was literally our our joking definition of what our company was for a long time yeah and in the last year we've gotten a little more clarity in that we've essentially created two companies both do business as the Bombi Bonds. Uh, one of them is a hospitality group. One of them is a creative marketing and trade advocacy company for liquor brands. There are a few things that sort of fall between the lines and we, we sort of put them in one category for, you know, the, the, the business purposes. But really there's two things. There's a 
creative marketing and advocacy company and a hospitality group. So on the hospitality side, you know, very easy. If it has something to do with bars that stand in one place, like opening a bar like Trick Dog or being involved with Cafe du Nord and Ache or doing a consulting for a bar or a restaurant, it goes on to that side. And the advocacy and marketing company is that's a beast. It's like <laughs> we we now have several clients uh, that are all liquor brands, um, some of which were partners in the brands, one of which we co-developed. Uh, yeah, like I we, saw on your website, it said Absolute being a partner. Like what's so the deal with absolute, that? And Absolute is, a, is, is even a different type of relationship. We have, a, we have a, an ongoing relationship with Absolute to advise them in certain arenas, to help them execute certain events, things having to do with trade launches. And again, it's, it's projects that they send down the pipeline to us. That's um, so incredible because you picture a company like Absolute and you picture them only working with like billion dollar marketing firms totally and, and this has been this has been a really interesting evolution for us as well because tequila ocho the, the first client that i was talking about is a very small brand and it's very niche and handcrafted and artisanal and you know all those words that people like to associate with brands that are small and absolute is it's interesting because as we continue to grow with the brand it is very much those things but then it's just a really massive brand that over you know several years you know many years has grown to be this you know this this much bigger company yeah. and brand and we you know again it's like you know our relationship with absolute started because like we met a guy who then was involved with one of the other brands in Pernod Ricard's portfolio and Pernod Ricard is the company that that owns absolute in the United States or that you know that imports absolute in the United States and we did an event and he had an event done out here and we did that event with them at at Squaw Valley, for, it was the Summit Series, if you're familiar with Summit Series. Mm -hmm. We went up and sort of like set up this bar room that was where all the attendees would come at night and drink. And Absolute had an event series that they wanted to launch. And as a result of that relationship, we got called. They offered us to do one. Then they offered us to do two. Then we did two. And then we ended up doing all of them. And then there were like nine more. Wow. And then we got to know them really well and we liked each other. And through that whole process, we were thinking about how cool it was. Like absolute is literally like, I mean, it's it. I can't think of a more successful print ad campaign yeah. from like the time when we were sort of growing up. Yeah, and no doubt. That, that sort of thing really drew me to that. And anyway, long story short, we do now have a range of the clients that are on the sort of the smaller brand side and growing and then the larger brands that, you know, are interested in what we can offer and how that juxtaposes with the large big box marketing companies, which they definitely also have. You know? It's incredible. I mean, this is only six years ago that you guys got thrust into this and now you already are seeing all the success. It's so awesome, man. It's good. So let's talk about trick dog. Yeah. So trick dog opened in 2013. Is that correct? Yeah. January 7th, 2013. We always joke that trick dog was the most anticipated bar opening in San Francisco of 2010. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. How long did all this 2013. Take? So Trick Dog was Trick Dog was is when Trick Dog when the opportunity to build Trick Dog came into our world it was uh, a very important point for us and a lot of the opportunity to do that came as a result of what we were sort of hustling 
with the in, initial stages of what the Bobby Bonds were doing. It was right. just like, you know, free work here, paid work here, consulting here, you know, oh, we'll work a table here. We'll be at SF Chefs or a Quasa event or this, just like constantly being out there. And we got notified of an opportunity to be a part of a, a larger scale product, pro, a larger scale project with the Natimius restaurant group, uh, who at the time, um, you know, their, their one restaurant at the time was flower and water. And through that opportunity, they gave us the opportunity to open our own bar because of, you know, thoughts that they had about growth of a neighborhood and, you know, where they had built their first restaurant, where they wanted to build their second restaurant, the synergies that would go between restaurants in a neighborhood and bars as, as they were watching this place develop. And so, I mean, it, it really was like a dream opportunity. Totally. And what's so cool for people listening to this that are from San Francisco, but have never been to this area, this particular area of the mission, or, um, I mean, obviously for people that have never been to San Francisco, like they really did. And you guys really did like make that area a lot nicer. Like things just yeah. got nicer once all that got built out. It's amazing. It really did. It's the neighborhood. I mean, I've, I've lived in this neighborhood longer than trick dog has, has been open and I'm a native San Franciscan, although I didn't grow up in this particular part of the neighborhood. Um, you know, obviously you see pictures from like seven years ago and it looks a lot different. And then you look at five years ago and then literally like you look at two years ago and even the, the social fabric of the neighborhood is different. You look, you stand on 20th street looking West and you see people walking down the street from the, you know, the Valencia direction back and totally. forth. I mean, you never used to see it. People totally. like Folsom South Van S was this like weird dividing line where people were just like, Oh, you know, I don't know. Like, and now it's just people cruising yeah having a good time trees green streets it's awesome that's so funny the last time uh, to hear you say that because the last time i went to dolores park with like a group of friends after dolores park we like walked the half mile to trick dogs we're like that's where we're gonna freaking get a drink like awesome. that's the best drink we can possibly get right now you know awesome. so it, so side note again for anybody that has not been there or um does not live in San Francisco. Trick Dog is probably the best bar I've ever been to in my entire life. Thank you. It's interesting. The only bar that I've ever been to that I feel like has a similar caliber of drinks, well, I guess two, um, would be like Bourbon and Branch or like Smuggler's Cove, mm -hmm. but that's all rum-based. Yeah. So obviously you guys can do some more stuff. But it's like a place like Bourbon and Branch, you have to make reservations like mm -hmm. two weeks out to even have a drink there, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah, your bar is just so much more approachable. The style is just so interesting. The menus are so interesting. Um, so, uh, sorry, I Thank got a little you. off topic because I, I, I want to actually start talking about some of those things, mm -hmm. like the drinks and the menus that you have there. But uh, let's take it back to getting the bar open from concept to reality. Totally. So, opportunity came to life. Deal got done. Um, really exciting. We first saw that space. It was piles of dirt floors. You could see the ceiling, like half the windows were missing. There were four shopping carts and 200 pigeons. And it was just like <laughs> a completely dilapidated space, which was, I'm way into, obviously, if you could, <laughs> if all of you could look around this office right now, it's a, it's a work in progress, but, uh, it was, it was real and you can't manufacture that sort of design, the bones of that. And that's something that was really attractive to us, yeah. particularly with, with San Francisco history. I and mean, that building was built 
in the teens. I mean, obviously in San Francisco, not much is older than 1906. Although there is stuff older than 1906. There's not all there's, there was a lot of construction after the earthquake and, uh, you know, but the bones were, were awesome. They just buildings don't get built like that anymore. There is a, you know, there were four or five beams that were original beams in there. One of them says Carnegie USA on it. Damn. That's crazy. That is so cool. (laughs) So, um, you know, obviously I think the, the, the big takeaway here from this whole three year period that went down between 2010 and 2013, when we opened is that we wrote a business plan and the bar that we opened is nothing like what was articulated in the original business plan. Yeah. You, we had to deal with things like, you know, on, on multiple levels, for example, our own design sensibilities changing things that we thought were cool or that we originally envisioned either didn't work because they weren't feasible. We just didn't think we're cool anymore. Our own, you know, travels through different bars around the world and restaurants and how those things influence, you know, your take on what will be your own place or sort of rapid fire information coming into our world. Definitely. Then furthermore, in terms of how we were, intending on programming the bar and the things that we felt would create unique points of difference with service and drink styles, for example, things that were, you know, maybe we were feeling like we were ahead of the trend in 2010 by 2013, those things are long gone. Yep. You know, they've, they've no been doubt, done. I mean, a, a yeah. very quick example, not that we would have been, uh, you know, trend setters in this regard, but we, you know, a lot of the original idea was sort of like about how do you, how do you continue to promote community drinking? How do you bring people in towards each other rather than back, um, you know, making it more like cocktail theater? How do you use the drinks to facilitate interaction between people and how do you set things up from a design perspective to encourage that sort of behavior? And obviously at the time in 2010, it was like well, punch bowls, punch bowls, like Rick house at that time was really the only people that were doing sort of like a full scale. We execute, execute very well at that level of doing punch bowls and people are, are doing it. Like they're buying punch bowls for their groups and they're doing what that bar wanted them to do with that. By 2013, it was just like, Oh sweet punch. Yeah. Just you know, drowning in I mean, punch. Bowls. Yeah. I mean, we do punch at, at different events and things like that, but like as having that be like a central part of your drink programming, it was like, it had sort of happened and that sort of idea popped up with several other things. So, you know, in 2013, when the bar got open or, or the end of 2012, we were sort of really continuing to refine what it was that we wanted to do. And the design was sort of an organic evolution throughout the process. We worked with two guys who were friends of ours. So it was fortunate that it wasn't like giving a drawing to a contractor and saying, build this, but rather being able to make design decisions on the fly and salvaging different things. I mean like, Oh, we just got all this stuff, like incorporate this into that element or whatever it was. So for that reason, do you feel almost fortunate? it that it took so long to open absolutely it was a blessing in disguise yeah really really gave us the opportunity to hone in on what we wanted and and develop our own identities as it relates to that you know trick dog is our scott and i's first bar and there will you know your first bar is it'll always be just like the, the the sum of all of these things that you've thought about your entire life and career as a bartender. Like if I open my own bar one day, what's it going to be like? And so it's, I mean, there's a hyper attention to detail at trick dog that, you know, it, it, it you can't necessarily manufacture that sort of emotion around a place. I imagine when you continue to do it, not to mean, not to say that you can't open bars that don't have the same level of detail or that you don't love as much, but there's something really authentic about like that first time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. (laughs) 
Uh, so when you guys first opened, uh, I, I want to talk about your menus really quickly. So um, something that Trick Dog has that is incredibly unique, and I I rave to everyone that visits me, or even when I'm out visiting people and I'm just telling them about Trick Dog for no reason whatsoever. Um, I always mention your menus, but I always men- mention how incest I am that you guys don't open a brand new bar with each one of those menus. I'm like. These dudes could be freaking millionaires right now by opening a brand new bar every single time with that. Like each one of the ideas is so good that it like I don't want it to go away. You know, like it deserves to be have its yeah. own bar around it. I mean, particularly obviously the record concept. Mm-hmm. You could then do a very music oriented bar, or whatever. But so when you guys opened, you guys had this menu concept that was uh, a Pantone uh, like paint swatches. Mm-hmm. So and it, it was an actual like paint swatch book that you would get from like home depot or something like that and what was so cool is so printed there would be quote unquote the name of the drink but it would actually just be the name of the paint like i remember like grandma's sweater or something yeah. like that it was like one great of my color. favorite drinks yeah, yeah so <laughs> good color good, color, good yeah. drink and uh and then underneath it though you guys would customize the pantone booklet having all the ingredients mm-hmm. of the drink written under the name of the paint yeah you guys did a very similar concept with records by taking old 45 records and uh having the name of the song be the name of the drink and then right underneath the name of the song it would be the ingredients of the drink which by the way it looked were those all the actual original records like it looked like no, you had multiple- so morgan got all the records at you know flea markets and, and on ebay and they're just any record and then the records that we had that were with each of the songs like the man eater for example we had one of those records and then scanned the label, put it in a Photoshop, added in the drink ingredients. So it looked like it was, you know, record producer information or any information that would be normally contained on a record label. And then had those all printed as stickers and then put back on any record. And we always joked. And then what beat them up and stuff afterwards. Cause it looked like these things were, well, I mean, you know, it's like we're a high volume bar, man. So, you know, it's (laughs) like they get, they get beat up. And then all the, all the binders that they were in were vintage record binders that they went into. Uh, but I always thought it would be really funny to take all those records and put them on a record player and figure out what actually they were, like what were actually the songs on all these records that we bought at flea markets for, you know, a few dollars. Yeah, totally. Um, the menus have been great. Um, we didn't intend on having the menus be this way when we started. Not, not that we didn't intend on having them be this way. We just didn't have the foresight to see that it would have sort of turned into this thing that people had really, you know, that they really get pumped about. And it's, uh, it's, we've set a high bar for ourselves in terms of continuing to do this. When you think about hopefully how long a bar is going to be open yeah. and every six months, we're going to have to come up with something that we feel creatively fulfilled by that we feel has high form is uh, an evolution from that, which we've done before that is user friendly to the guest and the, the ability for them to consume the information about the drinks that they need in a timely fashion. Also feel like the guests are creatively inspired and continue to add in elements that we've been doing about, you know, how do the coasters relate or fortune cookies, postcards that we mail thing like all these things like that that are that are coming out of the menus but for now we've still maintained you know uh, enough ideas to, to, yeah, to, I, to do it every six months i can't believe it um 
but it really just started with us wanting to do a menu that was not a traditional menu. It's like, we don't want to do a big binder or a big epilogue of cocktails and we don't want to have an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. How can we format this into something that's cool? And through the design process and the construction process at trick dog, there were so many of those like Benjamin Moore and Pantone color guides lying around our office and the construction site that Scott had this aha moment and was like that we should make that like we should do our cocktail menu like that. Totally. And so the way that it, has been in in more recent iterations um so like there was the chinese horoscopes and um what was yeah, oh, so oh, we did, the, the map of the city yeah so we did the sf tourist map we did the zodiac menu we did the china we, we did the zodiac menu we did the chinese restaurant takeout menu and now our most recent menu is a 2016 dog calendar which is the cutest freaking thing in the world so it, it, that's what i was going to say is i i feel like those more there was more recent three like the first two were amazing and i think particularly like the, the way that the record concept was pulled off was just so amazing um but you mentioned that before you opened the bar you really wanted this sense of community and getting people talking and bringing people together obviously if people walk in and you have this chinese zodiac calendar there people are a really quickly going to figure out what drink they want but then i'm sure if you walk into that bar on any given night, you're going to hear people talk. I'm the year of the ox. What is it? And then all of a sudden everyone's talking. Totally. About that. And, and as we've continued to move down this path and try and analyze people's behavior in terms of how they engage different menus, which is, you know, there's obviously like no metric for this. It's just being there and talking to the bartenders and feeling it out and watching. But there's something really interesting that happened with, with the Zodiac menu was that they spin the wheel around and then they look. And then most people, would go to their month and order that drink. And if there was nothing on there that they had like an aversion to, yeah. they'd order that drink. Totally. And, and you know, the calendar is the same people, you know, they look through and then they go to their month and they either, you know, they ordered their, their birth month or the dog that they really like, <laughs> like I love bulldogs. And so I'm going to get a February. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's cool. Giving people something to identify with. And the thing that we learned with the record menu, that was while the form of it was really amazing, it was very difficult to use. And particularly in a bar that gets as busy as trick dog, it's like you turn the thing upside down, the records fall out. The print was very small when it's low lighting, you have a difficult time seeing it. And we noticed it was, it was funny when we looked at the product mix report for the six month period of time, when we had the record menu dealer's choice and old fashioned were significantly higher than they have been in the rest of the periods. Oh, really? Because people would sort of look through and look through and look through and then they'd be like, ah, dealer's choice with rye. And we would notice also the frequency of that happening on the weekends much more when it, there were more people and it wasn't like you were sitting at the bar being able to flip through in a more like leisurely fashion. And so everything that we've done so since then has tried to you know make the format equally as interesting, but package the drinks and the drinks information in a way that's like much quicker and bigger and bolder higher contrast to be able to to pick out the information that you need and make the order. Yeah. What would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned in the past? So what is it? 2 years now since you guys opened? what what are the biggest lessons you've learned? You're only as good as the team of people that work with you. 100%. Um it needs constant attention. And it's the details that, you know, make a bar special. And I don't think that that's unique to the bar industry. I mean, that's sort of, you know, paying attention to the details is something that spreads across all the gamuts, you know, runs the gamut across multiple industries and disciplines. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's 
there's a little bit of magic that, you know, I call it magic that's involved with things like this. It's like, man, it's, you know, Scott and I are, you know, we don't have the golden touch. Like we've, we've done a really good job trying to build our skill sets and our, and, and, and the brand and the brand awareness around the Bombay Vance and around trick dog. But ultimately like there's time and space kind of stuff, man. It's like, you know, right neighborhood, right time right people, right confluence of things happening in the city, right space. I mean, it's like, there's a lot of stuff that you can't control. Absolutely. Maybe if you get really good at this at some point, you can sort of start to pick out those things. But we were by no means like, you know, that, you know, we had an opportunity and we were like, fuck, let's do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of that stuff that contributes to why trick dog is so special. And furthermore, you know, you end up starting to take on a life of, of, of how your guests engage with your bar as well. We're happy that they engage trick dog the way that they do in a lot of the intended ways, but you know, it really becomes, you know, bars and restaurants become you what know, the customer wants. It yeah. To it's, I mean, it's exactly, it's like, it's like art. It's like, you know, it's like, you look at a painting and it doesn't matter at a certain point what the artist intended it to be. If you're standing there looking at it at a museum, then that's what it is to you. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, that's happening at your bar with the type of people that you like and the type of people that you think are into the, the you know, the drinks that you make, or the food you serve, or, you know, whatever it is that you're offering. And we've been fortunate that I think that there's a really good crowd of people, really good residents in the neighborhood that, that are all about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It's not just like KKK rallies coming into your bar to get drunk. That would, <laughs> it's that would be not weird. that. so i had a really interesting thing happen to me yesterday um it which was i i had to go pick up my car from the shop so i took a lift to go and pick my car up Mm -hmm. and i did lift line to save myself a few bucks and we freaking pull up outside trick dog and (laughs) this girl comes out and uh and i immediately asked uh did you come out of salu maria which is another place next door and Mm -hmm. she's like no no i just came out of trick dog and i was like oh no way like yeah that place is so awesome and she's like yeah i'm actually the manager there i'm like get the hell out of here that's so crazy yeah (laughs) so that was really weird and uh, so we obviously started talking and i obviously said that's really weird that this just happened because tomorrow i'm going to be interviewing josh and she's like, oh, man, like Josh is the coolest guy. And she said something to me, which is nuts. So hopefully this isn't throwing her under the bus. And if you don't want to talk about this, we would just want to talk about it. But she's like, yeah, it's so interesting that he doesn't drink and he owns a bar. I was like, what? Yeah. That is really interesting that he doesn't drink and he owns a bar. How is that even possible? Like, again, to what I said earlier, Trick Dog has the best drinks I've ever tasted in my life. And you don't drink. So I, I do get this question a lot. And I do feel totally comfortable talking about it. Um, November of this year, I will have been sober for 12 years. Wow. And it's, there's, there's, I'm going to give you the medium length answer on this whole thing. So, (laughs) um, I had bartended in like a summer job capacity before I got sober. I loved it. I loved the, you know, the social interaction of it. Um, it was great summer job, great college job. I enjoyed it much more than looking at what my friends were doing and like, you know, bringing some guy coffee for free for three months and like having that sort of like, you know, being tricked into thinking that that was a good thing for them to be doing uh, for their potential career. And when I got sober, I was 22 years old and I had the desires to be like a young social guy and like go out and meet girls or go to concerts and dance and things of that nature that are, you know, normal activities for a 22 year old or a 33 year old. And 
I was still in college at the time I went back to college and I felt really strongly about wanting to be able to engage in all of those things that I would have done when I was engaging in that other type of behavior. And it was really important for me to figure out how to do those things and to feel right with myself in my new sober life. And what I found was that the social anxieties that I was experiencing being at a bar and being sober and being 22 were a completely normal and, <laughs> and B totally alleviated when I went back to being a bartender against the advice of many people as in, you know, newly sober person going back to, you know, being a bartender. And when I was on the bartender side of the bar, I was, I had a sense of purpose of being there. And it wasn't like I was on the, the customer side of the bar sort of wondering, whether well, should I order a Coke or should I order a soda or should I buy drinks for all my friends and then order a soda so the bartender doesn't think that I'm ordering a soda for myself or, you know, all these sort of really weird things that maybe are a big deal and maybe are not a big deal, but they're totally a big deal to you at that moment or to, you know, people that have been in a similar situation. Yeah. And so when I went back to bartending, it was a, like an amazing like it really helped facilitate the confidence in the social space and in the bar space that I have now. And that obviously has contributed to a lot of, you know, the success that we've had yeah. in, in the bar business. But also with that being said, at the time that I went back to bartending, the type of bartending that I was doing was not the cocktail bartending and like the cocktail development and flavor stuff that we do now. This is what I wanted to ask you about. I yeah. was like, man, 10, 11 years ago, people just weren't making drinks exactly. like that. So how do you, so there was no need, you know, people ask me, they're like, Oh, would you taste the drinks? And I'm like, yeah, I taste the drinks, but there was no, you know, there was no point at that time of tasting drinks because you don't taste a Jack and Coke at a neighborhood bar. Like you make a Jack and Coke and you give it to the customer and you yeah. charge them the money. And you can like, pretty much assume the next how person. it tastes. Yeah. yeah. So about, uh, you know, a handful of years later, basically, I got into the the cocktail thing, and there was a guy who was working at the restaurant. He was one of the managers, and he was like, you know, people they 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 can taste the things that they're doing. The they can straw taste it. You know, sommeliers taste and spit all the time. Even sommeliers, you know, like sommeliers that are not sober, just because when they're tasting, it's like. It's about the tasting, being able to taste multiple things over a period of time. It's not about getting drunk. So I sort of learned a few of these things that I was unfamiliar with at the time and felt comfortable going down that road. And obviously, you know, a handful of years later now, I don't engage in that part of the process with as much frequency as I did at the time when Scott and I started the company and we have other people around us. We have another partner, Morgan now who, who with Scott and some of the other people on the team really spearhead the drink development. And obviously, you know, Scott and I then will taste all of the things and, uh, you know, give final approvals on things and work with certain drinks in different ways. But it's not like Scott and I standing in my kitchen in 2009, trying to come up with a cocktail menu for a restaurant in Washington, DC, yeah. <laughs> making a mess everywhere, tasting everything. And, you know, Scott being drunk by the end, <laughs> it's yeah. very different. Definitely. Um, I will say this, that, um, there is a very strong connection to what I believe my potential for success is and my sobriety. Not that that connection exists for everybody because not everybody has to deal with drinking or not drinking as a problem. That was something that I had. And when I wake up every day and I come into this office, I, I very much associate the decision that I, I, I was forced to make at that time for myself with, um, 
you know, the tenacity with which I engage life and work and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Do you feel that, um, I guess just being in the food and drink space that you, over the years, you have kind of a heightened palate that despite not chugging these drinks, you can, you have a really good sense of what's going to go where. And I, I mean, there, in terms of the people that I encounter throughout my business, I do not have one of the best palates. I mean, Scott, for example, has one of the best palates around. Um, and there's people that can really pull flavors out in different ways. I and mean, I don't have a bad palate by any means, but I would definitely defer to other people if it was like, you know, something of extremely high significance or, or definitely putting other people's, other people's palates on it. Um, I do have a, a good understanding of flavor and, and how things go together. And obviously we complement each other well, but you know, flavor isn't the only thing that makes a cocktail too. It's yeah. like, I mean, it's, you know, our goal is that you love the cocktail that you are about to have before you've even taken a sip of it. So it's like, I mean, there's aesthetics and aromas and glassware. I mean, all that sort of stuff. It's like the marketability of a cocktail, why people order it, the psychology of why people order certain things, the words that they read before they order them and all that sort of stuff. So, man, it's so funny and hard to even uh, wrap your head around or appreciate those things unless you've been to a bar like Drake Doug before. And then you're just like, Oh my God, like this is, it's truly well, incredible. It's I mean, like, hopefully that all that stuff happens, you know, like hopefully all of that thought that goes into it in that way, like it just makes the impression it, it, it doesn't make an impression at all. Hopefully it's just like, Oh, I had a great time at this bar and all the drinks were great. Yeah. You know, and we've always talked about, you know, more people notice things that are bad than are good. Totally. Obviously, you know, many people walk in and they look around. It's like, oh, I love that light or I love that drink or this or that. But when somebody, you know, has a great time, they walk in and it was because all of these elements sort of came together Mm -hmm. and they just ended up having a great time. And hopefully people aren't sitting there being like, you know, over analyzing and guessing about (laughs) the the process with which we went through. And there are people like that. Yeah. um, What is it like for you then? I I imagine it's just got to be so cool. Um, when it's like having your child and watch your child succeed. Like if you're sitting at your bar, bartending at your bar. And, um, as I said earlier, you, you see people all of a sudden talking about their horoscopes and it's like, yes, like that paid off. Or if you see someone like pull out their phone and they take like a photo of their drink because of how freaking awesome it looks and like, Oh God, this is just so cool. And you like just overhear conversations like that. Is that a really like rewarding experience? It is. It is very cool. When people love what we do over there, it is extremely fulfilling because of what I mentioned earlier in regards to how personal a bar trick dog is to Scott and I, and that we really, you know, we set out to build a bar that was the type of bar that we would want to go to, which is more than just drinks. It's a place for people to go and get together and chit chat or dance or meet guys or girls, have a burger, bring your kids, sit upstairs, have some fries, you know, or get drunk or bring your parents or whatever. And so it's not just about like the singular focus of having the cocktail. And when we see people engaging that in different ways and smiling and laughing and taking photos, putting them on Instagram or sharing with their friends or whatever it is, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's so cool, man. Um, so let's, let's kind of wind down here. So before we leave people off with some advice, um, if you could just tell us really quickly about your charity work. I saw the whole entire swig and swine thing online, which is so cool. And it looks like you've done this in a lot of places now. Um, yeah. Hopefully maybe some other bar owners or people like that are listening and maybe they could so contact you. We, this is something that is very important to Scott and I, and it also, you know, like some of the other things that we discussed today did not set out, to be what it has become. Not that it set out to not be that. It just, it didn't have that 
you know, we hadn't looked that far down the road. Um, like I said, we started the company in 09. In 010, we were attending a, a very large cocktail conference or festival that happens uh, in New Orleans. And Scott and I had a conversation with each other about if we were going to go onto this stage, quote unquote, to do something that is going to be representative of, of the name of our company and our brand and do something uh, you know, for our peers, if you will, what would it be? And we sort of established that our style was uh, something that Scott has said for a long time. And we continue to utilize as a, you know, sort of a standard by which we measure things. And that's delicious, not precious. So it was much more about like, you know, it was much less precious than a lot of the things that you see at different cocktail festivals. It was much less about the finely made cocktail and much more about just bringing people together to eat good food, have good drink. You know, you serve yourself, you hang out sort of thing. So we were like, let's throw a barbecue in the park. And we had a pig roast. We put punches in 40 gallon trash cans with hundred pound ice blocks and you serve yourself and there's more than enough to go around. And a week later we were like, let's go build a house because new Orleans needs help. And we'll call some of our friends and see if they want to build a house with us. And we obviously didn't build a house, um, but we got linked up with an organization called KIPP, which is a, a charter school network that is not in all 50 states, but it is in many, many states and is extremely impactful in certain markets like New Orleans. They're huge. In Texas, they're huge. New York, they're huge. There's many campuses. They do great work for kids that you know need help making it through super mm -hmm. talented kids. And so I'm sorry, just really quickly to take a step back. So mm -hmm. the, the thing you did at the park, it, did you like charge an entry fee and what some of that went to charity? So we were like, let's do this thing. So then about a week after that, we we're like, okay, we're going to do this volunteer thing. We're going to have this barbecue. These two things are totally unrelated at this point. And we we're like, what if we found a way to raise money at the barbecue and then we give it back to the place where we volunteered. And so we made a t-shirt and we came up with this unofficial motto for the event that everything here is free, but if you don't buy a t-shirt, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and that worked. And so we had 11 volunteers that day. And from that event, we raised $1,600. And now the event goes off in New Orleans, Portland, Brooklyn, Miami during Art Basel, Austin during South by Southwest uh, with our last event that happened in New Orleans uh, about three weeks ago, we just crossed the 200,000th dollar donated. Whoa. And we are almost at 6,000 volunteer hours of labor That's for charter so schools cool, around the country. And every time we do a pig and punch, there is a volunteer day. Um, you know, we've had as many as 200 volunteers show up. In New Orleans, we have four school buses pull up in front of our rental house and all these bartenders and, and brand owners and brand people come in from all over the world and they come in a day early to this big cocktail festival and they go volunteer for a day and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Dude, that's so wonderful. So hopefully we'll continue to grow it. We've started this little uh, separate arm of it 
um, that is going to turn into a, a, a scholarship. So each of the, the money that we raise from each of the events goes to specific campuses. But now we're doing another program with the sponsor brands that, you know, we have sponsors for, 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 you know, some of them since the very beginning, how to use their brands in a way that can drive more revenue from outside of the events and create scholarships for kids to move on to college and through college. So Man, way to go, dude. That's cool. so cool yeah. to use your we're influence just, to help out. out. And God, that's so yeah. awesome. Drinking and fundraising, man. They go well together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I'll give $25,000. <laughs> um, all right. So yeah, why don't you leave us all off with, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody that wanted to, I guess, let's be a little more specific and say, um, open up their own bar. Like, I, I guess I, actually, this is something we also sort of didn't cover. Like, where where do you begin? Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I would make it more general than that because you know, there's there's obviously there's the whole other part of the company that we didn't talk about today, and at a certain point, those things became symbiotic with each other. Like one thing fed the other. Like the success of the Bon Vivants in its initial phases, and that brand gave us the opportunity to do Trick Dog, and Trick Dog continued to build the reputation of the Bon Vivants, and those things sort of like jumped back and forth with each other. And I would say that the hustle that we put into building the Bon Vivants, there's you know obviously several lessons and pieces of advice that could be pulled out of that. One of them is probably what many people's grandparents have said to them, and that is don't hold the nickel so close that you miss the quarter behind it. And that was something that we really employed throughout our entire practice early on of engaging with clients and potential clients. Explain that saying to me. I want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly. It means that if you're looking at the short, quick money, you may miss the long, big money in the future. Okay. And we really tried to build all of our business and our and our opportunities on relationships with people. And so I think that it's really important that people look at every single opportunity as a unique opportunity and not have hard lines about what it is that they do and what it is that they don't do and to really feel it out and feel out who the people are. I mean, that thing that you would do for free for one person may be, you know, like, a million dollars for somebody else, you know, to do it. It's, you know, but they're the right people with the right thing and maybe they have the right connections and, and who knows down the road what that could turn into in a long-term relationship. Sort of what I talked about with absolute. It's like, Hey, we did one event for sort of less than we quoted them. And it turned into this thing where we have this amazing long-term relationship with, with them now that is, you know, real people that, you know, call each other on the phone and talk about things, you know, in a, in a very personal way and not like a super corporate way. And so I think that it's really important that people are able to look at the opportunities that they're in front of them and continue to try and put themselves out there in a way that it's more than just the money. And that's really hard when you're a small business owner and you're trying to build a small business, because at the end of the day, it, you know, you need to make the money to yeah. keep on going, <laughs> but we, you know, don't be afraid to, continue to try and grow your small business and continue to work in a job that is maybe the job that you had before you started or something else that's going to help pay the bills. And if you're committed to being able to put in those long hours and to being tired, you know, then you are paying the right sort of attention to the appropriate growth and growth model of your company. 
because you are not doing it from a solely financially driven place. Yeah, for um, sure. You're obviously relieving some of the financial pressure for yourself personally until you get your company to the point where it's like, oh, like it, this pays me a salary or it pays both of us a salary. Yeah. yeah. Really good advice. Really good advice. Man, Josh, thanks so much. I wish we could have talked more, man, yeah. but it's, <laughs> maybe we'll have it's to come back. It's a half back hour here. intern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. Likewise.